Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Podcast. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast.matan.org.il. Each week we spend 30 minutes speaking about a seminal figure or idea on that week's Parsha. Parshat B'chukotai can be divided into two main sections. The first is what we often call the blessings and the curses, which are also mentioned in the book of Dvarim in Parshat Kitavo. The basic gist of them is this. If we listen to God and fulfill the commandments, we will enjoy fertility, fertility of the land, of humans, peace, and God's presence. But if we don't, we will be hit with disease, famine, wild animals, war, and destruction and exile. This section is thought to close the broader collection of laws called Sefer Habrit that opens after the delivery of the Ten Commandments way back when in Shemot chapter 20. The Parsha then continues in its final section with an eclectic mix of halachot, uh, monetary values of temple dedications, hekdish and cherem, two different kinds of dedications, and finally tithes, specifically ma'aser sheni, which must be eaten inside the temple walls. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Ilana Goldstein-Sachs, a seasoned teacher and day school curriculum developer. Lani has also baked and taught workshops on bread and Jewish sources and is currently the coordinator of the special needs bakery at Sadnat Shiluv in Gvot. Ilana has chosen to speak about the Parsha through the prism of its Haftorah, the reading from Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah, the prophet, chapter 16 and 17. Lani, it's great to have you here. It's wonderful to be here. Take us into this week's Parsha. So the part of the parasha that I'd like to focus on is the tochacha, which, um, as you mentioned, talks about the good things that will come upon us if we follow the Torah and what Hashem wants us to do, and the bad things that will happen if we don't. And I actually want to take a step back and first look at last week's parasha, particularly on the section at the beginning of Parsha Bahar, which talks about Shemitah. So at, um, at the beginning of Parsha Bahar, we learned about Shemitah. Um, six years, you work your land, the seventh year... Um, you don't. However, despite the fact that we don't work the land, right? that the land, nevertheless, will give forth its fruit on its own. Um, and then the Torah goes on to talk about Yovel, um, and that on the 50th year, which is, in, among other things, very similar to Shemitah, we also don't uh, work the land then. And then the Torah preempts a question that's going to come up. And what are we going to eat on that seventh year of Shemitah when we're not planting and we're not gathering any food? And so Hashem answers, right? The bracha, the blessing of the sixth year will be increased so that you'll have enough food to eat through to the ninth year um, when the next harvest will come through, that which was planted on the eighth year. And it says, uh, Right, you will plant on the eighth year min yashan, and you will. Uh, but until then, you will eat the yashan, the old grain from the old produce from the sixth year until the ninth year. So in Shemitah, we see two different aspects to that law. One that it is Shabbat Hashem, that somehow through relinquishing our control over the land for that one year, we're recognizing that. Uh, the land is really God's, and we're throwing our 
our existence, basically, into the hands of God for that amount of time. And on the other hand, Shemitah is also the great equalizer. That's the year that everybody eats from the same source of food. The slaves and the farmer and the, uh, and the converts and the, uh, and the poor people are all equal during that year. So it has both the, the Ben Adam Lamakom aspect, right, when we recognize um, that our lot is thrown in with God, but it's also the Ben Adam Rechavero aspect. In Parashat B'chukotai, in the blessings and the curses, um, you see something very interesting, that in both sections, the blessings and the curses echo much of what we see in Shemitah. At times it is done subtly, right, almost like literarily, as we'll see in a moment, and sometimes it's, it's, the connection is made explicitly. So, for example, in the section on the bracha, part of the bracha, part of the blessing that will come upon the people if they listen to, to God, is written in the terminology of Shemitah. So, for example, at the very beginning, V'natati gishmechem v'itam, v'natna ha'aretz yivula ve'etz hasadei perio. Right, that if you listen to God, if you follow the mitzvot of the Torah, the land will give forth its produce. The trees will give forth their fruits. Right, that's Shemitah language. It's almost, almost verbatim um, what we what was described of how we will eat during the Shemitah year. Now, it's important to remember that what is being described here in the Tochacha is not Shemitah, meaning this is this is um, regular life that they're talking about. But nevertheless. Um, the, the way that life works is described in the Shemitah way. It's almost as if the Torah is saying that there's something of the Shemitah year that has to remain with us even when it's not Shemitah. That we have that Shemitah one in seven years to remind us that everything comes from Hashem and that has to stay with us even when we're actually the ones who are working the land and making the food grow. It still has to be as if the fruits are coming on their own, as if the produce is growing on its own. There's an idea that um, we, we often think of Shemitah as a kind of a big Shabbat, right? Shabbat is something we do every week and, and Shemitah is similar ideas, both of the, you know, the connection to God and also the equalization of all people, that's the standard, that Shemitah is the big one that we do once in seven years. I think this is in the Ibn Ezra, maybe it came up in the, in the Shemitah, although I'm not, I don't, I'm not positive, that it's actually the opposite, that you know, Shemitah in some ways is the ideal, but it's not practical. You can't do Shemitah seven, you know, every year. So Shemitah is kind of like the ideal, and, and Shabbat is the mini Shemitah that we inject into our lives on a regular basis to kind of remind us of those ideas. And so it's a little bit perhaps what you're, you're you see in the echoing of the Shemitah language in the Tochacha. And also in the, the negative side of the Tochacha, right, with, of the curses, um, you, have, you have the opposite language. Where there it says, Vitam larik kochachem, right? No matter how hard you work the land, you're going to exhaust all of your energy because nothing is going to come from it. No matter how hard you work, you're not going to succeed. You're not going to be able to grow anything. So it's, that's the exact opposite of Shemitah. Shemitah, we, we withhold all work and yet everything is given to us. And here, if you're not following the Torah, then, um, then it's going to be the opposite. It doesn't matter how much work you put into the land, um, nothing is going to come from it. Those are like the illusions to Shemitah. But of course, the Tochacha mentions Shemitah explicitly. Well, there actually is one more um, allusion to Shemitah in the Tochacha. Um, as the Torah piles the curses upon curses, it mentions that with, with each uh, increased level of uh, punishment that the people will receive, it says that Hashem will 
add on sheva al chatotechem, right? So you will get seven times the punishment of what you have done wrong. And this is a recurring theme in the curses. And so perhaps that, that idea of the times seven is also meant to remind us um, of Shemitah. Whereas, uh, you know, ordinarily Shemitah, again, is supposed to bring blessing. If not, then, you know, you're going to be paid back, uh, you know, even seven times more because of what you're not doing right. Um, but then, of course, um, that is all kind of like summarized explicitly in the Tochacha, when the final blow of the list of punishments is that you will be sent out into Galut, and the land will, will be desolate, as right? then the land will finally be getting its Shabbatot, meaning its Shemitot, um, that it didn't get while you were in the land, meaning the, you, because you were not keeping Shemitah, and the land was, was um, not left uh, unworked for you know, uh, one in seven years. So when you are in Galut, you will basically be paying back the land, all of those Shemitot, which you didn't give it. This point that you mentioned, Lani, about Shemitah sort of being like an essence of all the Torah really goes back to this point about when the Mitzvah Shemitah was, was spoken and given. Um, it's a discussion that we sort of touched upon so ever so briefly in last week's uh, conversation. But the idea that theoretically Shemitah was given at Har Sinai gives it that sense that this is a sort of, it contains within it the kernel of the entire Torah, that our relationship with the world has to be both a relationship with God and a relationship with people. And I think, I think, and I think part of it is because of what we mentioned earlier, that um, in other words, it contains within it these two very central things, basically to all of the Torah. On the one hand, all is Hashem's and we must recognize that. And on the other hand, we also must um, respect all other people as being equal to ourselves. And, um, and uh, Shemitah brings that, you know, together very powerfully. So once again, we see in the Tochacha, if you're doing the will of Hashem, right, you get these blessings. And if you, um, the, or I should say these Shemitah-like blessings. And if you don't follow the will of Hashem, you get these uh Curses, which are also kind of like the reversal of those blessings of the Shemitah. In a very interesting way, Yirmiyahu is connected to these ideas in the Tochacha and in about, uh, these ideas about Shemitah in general in, in a very interesting way. Because as we'll see in a moment, there isn't much in Yirmiyahu which explicitly references or alludes to Shemitah. And yet there are two ways in which that connection seems to be made. Um, number one, before we even get to the Haftarah in one moment, at the very end of Divrei Hayamim, which ends with Hatzarat Koresh, right, the declaration that people, the Jews are allowed to return from Babel and come back to Eretz Yisrael, the, the author of Divrei Hayamim says that the, the people go out to Galut, they're in Bavel for 70 years, as was mentioned by Yirmiyahu, which Yirmiyahu does mention that idea of 70 years of Galut uh, a couple of times in, in, his, in his book, in his prophecies. But in Divrei Yamim, the connection is made to what we just saw in the Tochacha, connecting it to Yirmiyahu. So it says, um, right? They will be in Galut to fulfill the words of Yirmiyahu, who said um, that they would be there for 70 years in order to pay back the years of, of Shemitah that were not um, observed when they were living in the land. Now, it's not clear, right? Is the author of Divrei Hayamim 
saying that Yirmiyahu made that connection to Shemitah? Or is he, or is he simply saying that Yirmiyahu said 70 years and we'll make that connection for you? But either way, and it's fascinating that it's, it's within the, in the Tanakh, you have this very, very early source that is connecting a sort of like a very early form of Parshanut, a very early uh, Midrash of sorts, which is connecting the words of Yirmiyahu of the 70 years, right, having done the math, right, how many Shemitot... Right, this idea that enough Shemitot had passed for them to make up the Shemitot that they didn't actually keep. Whether the claim is that Yirmiyahu actually made the connection to Shemitah or not, the book of Devarimim is making that connection. Just to elaborate on that point, Lani, that in, in academic terms, it's called Parshanut Pnimikra'it, or internal internal commentary, uh, internal biblical commentary, where you have almost like a Midrash-like, as you said, um, piece, where uh, a later book in Tanakh will put together two earlier sources and and then produce, in this case, a somewhat new perspective. And so that that's a phrase that we have, we see it very often, and, and it really is the earliest form of Midrash that we already see manifesting in the later books like Divrei Yamim uh, and Ezra and Nehemiah. That's one source that connects Yirmiyahu to what's going on in the Tochacha. And then, of course, the choice of Haftarah. Now, we don't know exactly who chose the Haftarot and when exactly they were chosen, but it is very early. Already in uh, the Gemara, there's references to Haftarot. So whoever chose this section of Yirmiyahu to be the Haftarah for Parshat Bechokotai is clearly making the connection between the themes that we've already spoken about and uh, this particular prophecy of, of Yirmiyahu. So there are two things in this Haftarah that link to the parasha, which it seems clear is the reason that it was chosen. So number one is um, the choice of a one particular word towards the beginning of the Haftarah. Yirmiyahu here is describing how the people of Yehudah fail to recognize God as the one true God, as opposed to, he says, there are nations of the world, or there will be nations of the world who will recognize God, and they will come and declare God that God is is the true God. And yet, God's own people, um, Israel's, failed to do this. As a result of this, Yirmiyahu says, "V'shamatita uvecha minachalatcha, asher natati lach, v'alaticha et oivcha ba'aret asher lo yadata." Right. So the, the key word here is "v'shamatita." Right, which is the same, it comes from the same root, of course, of Shemitah. It means to release. Now, if you look at the Mifarshim, there's a little bit of a debate as to what exactly, the, the phraseology here is a little bit unclear. Is it saying that the people, meaning the people of Yehudah, will be released, meaning they will be sent out into Galut, and that's the Shemitah that's going on here? Or is it saying that the land will be released from the people? If you look at, for example, among other Mifrashim, if you look at Rashi and, and Radak on these Psukim, you'll see these two opinions uh, represented. But either way, right, the use of that word seems to be an allusion to this idea of Shemitah that we have been seeing, right? That because the people were not keeping Shemitah or the Torah in general, but seeing the Shemitah as a kind of like a, a, a representative of the laws of the Torah, um, they, either they will be released from the land, right, or the land will be released from them against their will. 
And then you will go and you will have to work your enemies in a different land, right? So the irony being that you weren't Oved et Hashem, you're not worshiping Hashem, but you were working Oved, the land, and now as a result, you will be uh, serving a foreign nation in a foreign land, right? Um, and so a lot of those themes that we saw in the negative part of the Tochachar are kind of coming through here. In the continuation of his, uh, of his uh, prophecy, he, he states uh, two tree metaphors. The first is a metaphor for a cursed person who puts all of his um, faith in other people. And the Hayaka Ar'ar Ba'arava, there's a lot of debate as to what exactly an Ar'ar is, but basically this person is compared to a, a type of dried up tree that's in a, dry, a dried up land, um, which um, will never see any good, right? It has no source of water to allow it to flourish, and therefore nothing good will ever come from it. On the other hand, right, Baruch HaGever Hashem Hashem right, blessed is the person who puts his faith in Hashem. And this person is like Eitz Shatul Al Maim, Va'al Yuvali right, this is like a tree who is planted by the water. Um, and not only is it planted by the water, but it stretches out its roots into the streams. And such a tree, right, Lo Yiraki Avochom, it will never fear when it's hot. Right, because it always has a source of water. Right, when there's a, a drought, it won't worry, and it will never cease to make fruit. Now, um, clearly, this is a metaphor for someone who follows. You know, the, the water is the word of Hashem, the Torah, um, and whoever uh, uses that as as its source, whoever is like the tree who is who is drinking up the water and will always give forth fruit. But what's interesting about this is that once again, we see the same exact language that we saw both first in, uh, in Shemitah and then in the Tochacha. But what's interesting is that if in the Tochacha, the fruit-giving tree is the reward for the person who follows the word of Hashem, in Yirmiyahu, that tree is a metaphor for the person, him or herself. Meaning the person is the one, the person himself or herself becomes the tree that drinks up the word of Hashem and gives forth fruit. Possibly, you could say, turning into uh, the very thing that Shemitah or following the Torah in general is supposed to do. On the one hand, to make us into people who draw upon the Torah constantly, recognizing um, that Hashem should be that constant part in our life, but also giving off fruit, right? That which other people can enjoy from us. So, so Yomiao takes the, this tree image, which we've now seen three times, but turns it into a metaphor for the person who follows Hashem. To take this one step further, and here we're, we're going a little bit more into, um, you know, speculation on my part. I, I don't know that this is directly in Yermiyahu. Um, I was trying to understand what this metaphor um, of this idea of the rooted tree that's rooted in the water and therefore can flourish um, and its connections to Shemitah, what that would mean to Yermiyahu, right? Who lived in possibly one of the most, both as a nation, one of the most difficult time periods, but also personally had a very, very uh, difficult and complicated life. You know, trying to like, rid myself of my own associations with it and try to imagine what he would think about it. And I, I got some insight from what I, I think is possibly a, a somewhat unusual source. Um, there's this great book by Meir Shalev called Ginat Bar, 
um, where he he has a garden which he uh, which he keeps, and this book is about his experience of gardening in his garden, and he has a chapter on each kind of plant. All of the plants are indigenous to this country, and he has a chapter on on trees, and he talks about how what makes trees, or I guess plants in general, different than humans, right? Plants also drink and they eat, right, in their own manner. Um, they also have feelings, right? They'll grow towards things or away from things depending on their needs. They react to their environment. But what makes plants, or he, he, he mentions in, specifically in connection to trees, um, different than, than mammals or other animals um, is the idea of rootedness, right? That um, the trees can't move and they also can't fight back. He, connect, he connects this to the Pasuk from Sefer Devarim, uh, right, where there it's talking about where we're going to war against another nation and we make a siege around that nation, right? And, you know, we, we, can, we can kill off that whole nation if that's what uh, is required of us, but right, the trees are not human beings, right? It's a rhetorical question, right? Um, the tree, are, are trees human beings that you should also kill them off, right? In the Pasuk there it says um, that they are able to come towards you when they are besieged, meaning trees, unlike humans, are, are stuck. They can't run away. They can't fight back, you know, uh, for the Lord of the Rings fans out there, right? Um, I don't know if you're a Lord of the Rings yes, person. Yes, I've seen all the movies, although unfortunately I haven't read all the books. Right, so they're Ents. The Ents are the tree, the tree shepherds, right? These, these very tree-like creatures, but what makes them, like, surprising they is that they, they can walk and they can fight back. They're the ones who defend the trees, the forests. It's uh, taking that aspect of treeness away from it so that it can protect its, its own kind in a way. In that example of Sefer Dvarim, where we sort of bring in the concept of trees and not cutting down trees in the context of war, I think very often what we think about is the idea that we have to be careful how much we de- desensitize ourselves, that we're uprooting these humans in an act of war, which in that case is allowed because it's a, a commanded war, milchebet mitzvah. But we want to remember that there are roots that take a very long time to be created and to become deeply embedded in the earth. And so when God speaks of man as a tree, and also there's also a mitzvah to make sure that you don't cut down excess trees in war, it's sort of this, I don't even know anymore what's the metaphor and what's the, and what's the real life image uh, because they all sort of come together in in those commandments right. within the context of war. But what makes the tree most a tree is also its greatest weakness, the thing that yeah. that uh, doesn't allow it to defend itself. And he, he, he tells us uh, this sad story about this tree that he used to always go to visit near Yam HaMelech that was this beautiful tree and he and his friends used to always eat under it before they head out on their tiulim. Um, and one day they come back and they see that it's dead. And they realize that, you know, a couple of hundred meters up the road, they were doing some road work. And all it required was a slight altering of the flow of whatever water would stream down that road to deprive that tree who wasn't able to jump to a new place to get water from, from living. You know, that uh, image in the Tanur Achnai in the Gemara where it talks about that you prove who's right by, by all sorts of signs, when it says, you know, that the, the haruv will prove by jumping. Why is a, a carob tree able to prove something by jumping? Because trees don't jump, right? That's clearly like a uh, miraculous thing if the tree is starting to move. For Yirmiyahu, when the people came to the land, the life that they were meant to live was meant to be rooted in the land. It, but it was meant to be rooted, as we see in that metaphor, in the water of the Torah that was meant to make them flourish in a very specific kind of way. But instead what happened is that they get influenced by the Avodah Zarah and the land, which, which created a very different type of society, because with the Avodah Zarah becomes all sorts of other ideals 
that is, is not what, what the Torah or Hashem intended. And so this idea of the tree that's rooted in the land, and with Shemitah, it's specifically rooted in this land, right? But here is Yirmiyahu, faced with a society that is not rooted the way that it's meant to be rooted, and they're facing being uprooted and being brought to a different land. And he has to deal with this irony of, well, does it really matter? If the trees aren't growing the way they're meant to be growing, then maybe it doesn't matter if we're uprooted and moved to a different land. Um, and then when he actually is given briefly an opportunity to stay in the land before he actually ends up going down to Mitzrayim eventually, um, there you have that one nevuah, that one prophecy where he says, you know, once again, you will plant trees here and you will build homes here and you will have vineyards here, right? So perhaps again saying, okay, there is a chance if you do it right this time, right, then staying in the land is what you really are supposed to be doing. If I understand correctly, you're saying that the rootedness in mitzvot, our ability to fulfill them and and keep ourselves embedded in a society that is just and that is fulfilling the will of God, enables us to be embedded and rooted in the land of Israel. Now that that relationship is spoken about all over. That if we've mentioned you know a number of times in this podcast, but the addition I think that you're adding here is this image of being rooted and that the Shemitah imagery of trees and of of the land and leaving it fallow and working it is a is again a metaphor that is reality. It's stay rooted in your mitzvot and you will stay rooted in the land as well. Um, but, but it's not only, it, it is the idea that we're supposed to be following certain laws, but it's also, also the ideas that the laws of Shemitah are meant to instill in us, right? The idea of reliance upon God and kindness to other people, right? It's not, it's not simply that we're, we, we have to follow the law. It's that we have to follow these laws, which are meant to make us into a certain kind of nation. And if we don't, then we're going to turn into a very different kind of nation, which, you know, in, in that case, we might as well just be rooted somewhere else because it doesn't matter if we're here or if we're there. Another point I was thinking about as I was sort of looking over these chapters in preparation for our discussion today is that actually the section that the Haftorah doesn't bring right before in the beginning of Perak Tetzayin, Yirmiyahu was commanded by God that he can't marry or have children. Uh, and in one of the... <laughs> numerous places in Sefer Yirmiyahu where we have a sense of how tragic his life becomes, where he himself becomes a a symbol of all of the tragedy that will befall Am Yisrael. One of them is that he couldn't be rooted. He couldn't have a wife or a child. The I also just add that a tree is a very central motif in in Tanakh and also in the ancient Near East. Um, it comes up in Tanakh a number of places. We talk about the Geza Yishai, sort of the 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 branch or or the the la- the lasting bud that will remain after uh, Israel is destroyed in the first destruction. This is Yishayahu's prophecies, um, but there will be a a branch or an element of the root that will remain. And, and it also in Sefer Zaniel, we have an image also of a, of a tree where the king himself is compared to a tree. And so this, you know, trees being large and impressive and also well rooted and strong and, and lasting much longer, obviously, than, than many humans did in those days. It's a very significant image that, that obviously you're bringing out in a very strong way here that we could really miss because your reading is a, is a very sensitive one. Right. 
As we wind down this conversation, I actually want to throw like a theological, uh, theological axe at you, um, which is sort of a topic that I, I really think about a lot and I feel strongly. And I recorded a number of episodes with, uh, with Tanya White last year that connected to the idea of measure for measure. Uh, we spoke about it more in the world of suffering, but just the idea that within the Torah and also later books of prophecy, the correlation between uh, sin and punishment and and good deed and the reward seem very, very clear. Uh, the Tochacha, the blessings and the curses in our parsha and Kitavo are sort of like the flagship text that correlate, right? How also we say in, in Shema as well. And and when you read it, it's it's hard because our lives don't really play out that way. And Eov rejects or challenges uh, this correlation as well and sort of our hands are put up at the end and we're told that we're never really going to understand anything. But I'm curious how you, how you sort of assimilate this into, into your life or, or teach it to others so that it feels in consistence with the world that we see around us. Right. So, I mean, there's no question um, that uh, the Tochacha is a prime example of this idea. If you're bad, you get punished. And if you're good, you, you get rewarded. But I think um, certainly, you know, th- as we look at it through this text in Yirmiyahu, um, I think that um, Yirmiyahu, at least, um, is is suggesting that it's not only that they're being punished for not doing what they're supposed to be doing. I think he's presenting it as the natural outcome of their choices, meaning it's the idea of that, you know, and in Yirmiyahu, the 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 sin of idolatry is like central throughout Yirmiyahu. But it's not simply that you have this angry God who wants you to worship him, and if you don't, he's going to zap you. It's that together with idolatry came all sorts of immoral behavior. Because, And this you see throughout Nevi'im Achronim, that the, the idea of, of sacrifices, for example, in idolatry, um, was that you it doesn't matter how you behave, Right, you do whatever you want. You're terrible to other humans, and you uh, you do all sorts of bad things, and then you appease God by by bringing a sacrifice. Right, um, and this is a theme that comes up all all over Yirmiyahu as well. Right, where they thought, well, as long as we have Beit Hamikdash, right, nothing bad will happen to us. Right, Hechal Hashem, Hechal Hashem. This is the house of God. He's not going to destroy his his own house. And Yirmiyahu says nonsense. Right, if you're bad, he's going to just he is going to destroy his, the Beit Hamikdash. And so I think that Yirmiyahu is presenting their behavior, it's not only as, you know, bad, 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 and therefore I'm going to have to exile you. It's that this society cannot continue the way that it is because this is not a good society. And this draws back to what you were talking about at the beginning, you know, that which precedes uh, the Haftarah in Perak Tedzayin. I think also um, part of what's going on there is that Hashem is saying you have to withdraw from the society. You can't go to the funerals. You can't go to the weddings. You can't be any part of the life cycle anymore because the whole society is not sustainable. Right, it's it's not going to continue, and therefore, like you said, he has to he has to like you know be an example of what is going to eventually be, which is total destruction. So, what you're really calling us to do is to read these texts as gradual. That while their textual presentation in the parsha looks very immediate, right? If you do good, you're going to be rewarded with fertility, and if you do bad, you'll be you'll be punished with infertility. That these are very harsh statements, and they also feel very immediate. But what you're saying is that they could also take place gradually, and part of what Yirmiyahu was doing 
throughout much of, of Yirmiyahu, we've sort of mentioned a few examples, but I think there are many more, is that he sort of is hearkening back to the Torah and saying, that's true. That formulation is true that if you do bad, you will receive bad, but that it's just a few hundred years have elapsed since it was said. And so the people of his generation do not connect the two together. Right. They do not connect um, their deeds and the faith that will befall them. And so you're saying that you think that they're there is truth to it while acknowledging that it's a very difficult, uh, they're very difficult texts, but that they have to be looked at gradually and not in the immediate way that they, that they sometimes tend to seem in an initial reading. Right. I mean, I think it would be disingenuous to say that there's no element of, you know, reward and punishment. I mean, it's right there in Kriyat Shema. But I do think that you're correct. I think that it's, it's more complex than simply, right, you know, you're a bad person and you're bad and therefore God's going to like, you know, it's happy with the punishment. It, it is a process, and it's, and it's a result of fulfilling or not fulfilling the broader life that the Torah is telling you to live, not a very specific result of any given you know, thing that you might do wrong. Lani, it was great to speak to you today. Seeing that this is the final episode of Vayikra, I just wanted to end with a reflection on the episodes we've recorded. We often think of Vayikra as the more challenging book. It's full of sacrifices and other details that seem far removed from our modern lives. But as I think back to the conversations I've had over the past 10 parshiot, I am moved and even a little bit proud at how diverse and interesting they were. I can't wait to jump into Sefer Bamidbar with you. We have a fabulous lineup with some beloved guests returning and a number of new guests as well. So stay tuned and remember to share these episodes with friends and family so we can keep this project running. Shabbat Shalom. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.